0: And my favorite example of somebody praying this way is you look at Daniel in uh, Daniel chapter six. And the king at the time, Darius, issues a decree that anybody in Babylon who prays to anybody but the king in the next 30 days is going to get executed. And so Daniel, who is this high ranking official that King Darius actually likes, the first thing that we're told he does, he hears this decree and he goes home, he opens his windows. He faces Jerusalem, he gets down on his knees, and we're told he prays and gives thanks to God. Uh, like he gives thanks, that's the first thing he thinks to do. And uh, that's Daniel 6, 10, and it isn't until the next verse that he starts asking God for any relief. Now what, interestingly also, God doesn't take it away. Like God doesn't just take King Darius away, God doesn't take the decree away, and he doesn't take the lions away. Like he's gonna get thrown to the lions. What he does is he gives Daniel a supernatural peace, despite the fact that he's surrounded by lions. And you contrast that with King Darius, who we're also told that night, so he's like the wealthiest guy on the planet, he's in the best palace in the world, he's sleeping in the comfiest bed in the world, but he's not sleeping, he's awake. He doesn't get one wink of sleep. And what that tells us is if you have the peace of God, which Daniel had, you know, like I'm thankful for what God has done, what he's promised, and uh, who he is, like his character. I can sleep perfectly, even though I'm surrounded by hungry lions. But if I only have good circumstances, like King Darius had, that's never gonna be enough. I'm never going to be happy. I'm never going to find peace. So, I mean, like 99% of the time, what Christians are doing and and the world is doing is trying to change the circumstances so that I can find peace. And it just, it doesn't work like that. Change what's going on on the inside and be given, you know, be infused with the peace of God. And then you become so strong that it's like, well, it doesn't matter what the world's circumstances are.
1: That is Pastor James Hine, and I'm your host, Dr. Ben Coles. I'm so glad that you have chosen to spend your time with me today. The Well Mind podcast is a space for in-depth conversation about a broad range of wellness related themes and topics. By education, I'm a mental health counselor and a counselor educator. I'm passionate about personal growth, living well and thriving in relationships. Today, we take a journey into the crossroads of spiritual wellness and mental health. Pastor James Hine, presently serves at St. Marcus Lutheran Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. James is an old friend of mine, and I'm so happy to have him on the show today. He's thoughtful, genuine, and compassionate, and shares about his own journey with the mental health diagnosis obsessive-compulsive disorder. He speaks about the Bible's nuanced approach to wellness and mental health, and he drops plenty of practical wisdom related to the process of spiritual growth. This is a little bit of a longer episode, but we just had so much good stuff to talk about. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Episode 3, Cultivating Spiritual Wellness. Pastor James Hine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's fantastic to have you as one of our initial guests on our WellMind podcast. Uh, I look forward to our conversation. Um, and I think I think we're going to touch on some really important topics, um, especially in regards to the intersection of uh, spiritual wellness and mental wellness. Uh, yeah. But before we dive into some of those topics, uh, maybe it'd be good for you just to give a little bit of information about your background, kind of where you're at in terms of your your professional career, uh, personal life, those kind of things, just to kind of orient us to where you're at.
0: Yeah, I would love to. Thank you. And I don't know if I should go with Dr. Coles or Ben. I don't know which. Yeah,
1: just Ben for here. Ben's okay?
0: Okay. Yeah, James is okay too. I never want to assume anything. But uh, uh, yeah, you and I go uh, quite a ways back. And uh, it's just kind of cool to be here in this moment right now. Um, But I've been a pastor for 13 years. Um, Out of the seminary, I ended up at Rochester, Minnesota for a number of years, about seven or eight. And now I've been in Milwaukee, Wisconsin for the past five years, and I serve as lead pastor at St. Marcus Lutheran Church um, in Milwaukee, right in kind of the heart of the city. And I love the diversity. I love the urban work. I love uh, all that stuff and uh, like the humanity of it. And uh, it's, it's fantastic. But for me personally, my history with like mental health and wellness and, and all that stuff uh, is an interesting one in that I at a younger, um, I wasn't necessarily diagnosed at a younger age, even though I knew enough, I had done enough research by like 14 years old to know that um, what I had seen on the Phil Donahue show, what they were doing an episode on, like I very clearly have that obsessive compulsive disorder thing and uh so i was dealing with it kind of on my own and in secrecy and quiet for a long time uh i there's a high comorbidity rate with anxiety depression with ocd and so i my ocd manifested itself in a lot of the traditional um uh ways like the hand washing and the rumination and the checking and all that counting and stuff like that those kind of rituals but it was also a lot of like anxiety and depression too. And for me, the journey of figuring out what resource my Christian faith provides in navigating a lot of that was um, an interesting piece. Um, you know, my it wasn't just a faith thing, but it certainly intersected with my faith. And so, you know, I write what you're doing in this podcast. I think speaks into my own personal journey quite a bit. Yeah.
1: And I appreciate you sharing that up front, James, and, and uh being willing to talk about that today too. Um and, and that's one of the reasons why I asked you on the podcast, frankly, is because I know this this isn't um strictly a professional topic for you. Um yeah. and, and I think that's you know, we, we gravitate toward towards things. Um That we're passionate about because we we share some personal connection with it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, for for better or worse, I would say. But in this case, I think it's for the good, um, for you, for our audience, um, you know, for our time together today. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. We do. We go way back. Um, high school, uh, years, college years, um, for sure, and have had had a lot of shared experiences, which I. often think of fondly and yeah 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 so appreciate that we've been able to share some important moments uh of life together especially at early in our development when we were just trying to figure out who we were
0: right it's also like so i mean for me personally i there was a time i thought i was going to go into uh psychology or psychiatry or whatever and just went a different path and uh, to see you go down that route and get, you know, as far as you have in it is just kind of, it's kind of, it's weirdly rewarding <laughs> whatever for me. And just to see that divergence in life and yet how God in his body as a whole um, meets, directs people in the places that they, you know, according to his sovereign like providence where they need to be. And even that is, I mean, over the years has been a huge um, like anxiety reliever for me, the idea that like, I don't know what's going to come and I don't even know what should come, but if there's a God who uh, can see down the road, miles ahead of what I can see, why not just trust the guy who can see the future? you know, and whatever he's doing, you know, well, he's, he's got his eyes a couple of miles down the road and I'm just looking right in the present. So seeing the way he maneuvers his body for different people in different places for different purposes is uh, always rewarding to me. So.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and for then for me, seeing where you're at, you know, in my initial trajectory coming out of high school was uh, that pastoral track of study. Right. Uh, and knowing that when... You know when a door closes and you know that was a door that I decided to close yeah um, that other ones open up um, and so that ability to uh, pivot and, right and adjust when you know in this case like a decision was uh, my own but there are plenty of times when choices are made for us uh, right and you know case in point is this year um, yeah we're having to adapt, we're having to adjust, pivot, um, let some things go, pick up some new things um, that maybe we weren't anticipating. And yeah, I think the general sense of stress, anxiety, uh, fear, confusion, these are kind of permeating our, our culture right now. What kind of things like are you seeing in your urban ministry that, that speak to those experiences?
0: Yeah, the, so the, the reality is the COVID stuff has sort of disproportionately hit people of African-American descent um, even harder. And so I, one of the things that I keep circling back to right now is nobody is doing well during 2020. Like, if anybody says they're doing fantastic, it's a little, it's almost like sociopathic, like, because the rest of the world is suffering. So, if you're doing well, um, that's probably not healthy in its own way. Nobody's doing well, but some people are proportionately doing worse. And it's really hard to have sympathy and empathy when you're not 100%. But so maybe you're 80%, but somebody else is like 40%. Um, And actually I think part of God's design for our healing process is to get us outside of ourselves and to focus more on the other person serving the other person. Um, And like, it's one of those things. I remember reading a study once on how your body can't completely process uh, pain in two places at once. So like if you, you know, uh, jam your finger and you have a headache like it's hard to process for your brain to process pain in both places at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so if you're acutely aware of stress and pain in your own life, uh, sometimes if you focus on the serving the brokenness and hurt in other people's lives, um, it actually has this like therapeutic power and relieving you of some of your own stresses. Now that's not always the case, but as a lifestyle principle, I think it's true. And I think for that matter, from a Christian standpoint, then moving into Um, brokenness of humanity, like what the flesh naturally does is it tries to run away from anything um, uncomfortable uh, or, or, or whatever. And I mean, as you know, in psychology, a lot of times what you actually have to do is hold somebody's hand and walk them to actually face the thing that they've been running away from their entire life. Because you have to, you know, sort of slay that dragon, you can't just hide from it forever. But Um, I think that's true of Christians, too. Like, the idea that we would run to the safest spot, the most sterilized spot, and the, you know, um, most comfortable spot is just not the Christian. That's not the mission of Christ. Christ came from the comfort of heaven to the, uh, like, kind of ghetto of earth, and immersed himself in some messiness to bring healing to that messiness. And I think from, I mean, that that framework of thinking for ministry has been important for me in terms of ending up where I'm at on North Avenue in Milwaukee and, um, doing playing my little part in trying to bring some healing, you know, in, into some of that, not that understanding that I'm a broken person myself, you know, and Christ brings healing into my life, but you know how we're doing. Um, I would say some of the people that I'm serving are just doing worse and it actually is frustrating at times to hear other people talk about, you know, COVID as a hoax or, you know, whatever. When you have people who are legitimately hospitalized, legitimately have family members dying legitimately like that. Um, it's, it's being patient and all of that, you know, and, and understanding where people are coming from. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that, again, that takes empathy yeah and that doesn't happen on accident that that's an intentional thing because um, just like you were saying you know our our natural tendency just as humans is to avoid pain and suffering and seek (laughs) comfort and socially we're definitely oriented towards you know making life more comfortable for ourselves in every way shape or form yeah Um, so as christians certainly not being immune to that but Um, you know the the point about um, having empathy actively moving towards suffering when you yourself are hurting um, for maybe similar reasons or different reasons I don't don't know I wonder if you can kind of speak to that as um, you're trying to work within the body at least in your area
0: yeah um yeah the the one of the things, as you were talking, one of the things that I was thinking about is how, you know, when I'm personally doing some pastoral counseling, and one of the things, like, it's kind of a cliche thing for a pastor to, like, prescribe, let's say, prayer, you know. And so, like, there's, there's benefits in and of itself with prayer, but part of the technique, I'm, like, I'm fully convinced, you know, there's so many passages where um, God commands prayer for the reduction of anxiety. And so, for instance, you know, in 1 Peter 5, it says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. And in Philippians 4, Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, um, but by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And and Jesus himself, in in Matthew 6, he says, don't worry about anything. Uh, Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. And And so, first of all, it was liberating for me to hear... God, like, I don't think I understood early on in my life that God actually commanded me not to be anxious. Um, And if he can command me to do it, then I have some level of control over it. It's not just this physiological. I mean, there is a physiological component, but it it doesn't have to consume me. And there's actually some resources that God gives me, like prayer, to work through some of those issues. And then what I started to do and what I've encouraged other people to do is structure like when, okay, there's an issue in your life that you're really stressed out about. Uh, give yourself prayer windows so if it's five minutes or it's ten minutes at the beginning of the day at the end of the day, uh, talk to God about it there and then like willfully force yourself to let it go throughout the rest of the day. and then stop thinking about you as much as you can because like to some extent, it requires faith to say, God, I'm not big enough to handle this. You are big enough as the God who holds the universe together. You're big enough to handle this. And I'm going to leave this in your hands and stop trying to problem solve and think about this now. And I'm going to do right now for the rest of the day, what you've actually called me and commissioned me to do, which is to go out into the world and serve as your hands and feet uh, and voice to the world. And so I'm going to, I know you're taking care of me. So I'm going to go out into the world and try to help take care of others a little bit more. And I'm not going to worry about my problems completely. I'm going to worry about, you know, other people's, concern myself with other people's. And there's, I mean, there's a balance in life. It's not, um, yes, I'm going to obsess about everybody else's problems and not clean up my own, you know, mess. But I think that balance of, okay, I'm going to work on me when it's the right time. And I'm going to then give it to God and not obsess about me because I'm going to spend the rest of my day um, actually focusing on others ahead of self. Because, I I mean, one of the definitions of sin is the, like, the conception of the human heart turned inward upon itself. It's like hyper-obsessive self-focus. You know, we were created with hearts that were aimed towards God to reflect his glory out to others. But when that heart gets turned inward upon itself it creates you know it's, the world's problems wars and oppression and abuse is is caused by everybody saying me first you know and so like being able to say no because God put me first I'm going to say you first in my functional day-to-day life and for that matter if you can get a bunch of people moving with that operational principle of you first like a church like a body like a thousand people I think what they can accomplish together with a you first uh, posture is something that looks nearly miraculous in the world. I think that's when you get like social positive social movements and, you know, Christians inventing hospitals and, you know, like that kind of stuff.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so you've really gone from like a micro level of what do I do in a practical sense in my day to day life, all the way up building to the macro level of the, the, body of believers working uh in conjunction with one another to serve each other and other people
0: yeah yep
1: um and and so if we maybe uh you know deconstruct that a little bit um to to dive into it like you're saying from a practical sense it it does start with some sort of behavior and Mm -hmm. and i think uh for a lot of folks it's easy to recall a passage that says you know don't be anxious or cast all your anxieties on him um but then i end up still feeling anxious and stressed, yeah. and so then i feel badly about that yep um, yes
0: guilty so. feeling guilty about feeling guilty and stuff like
1: that yeah yeah, yeah but but to to connect that right with like the whole passage or the whole section or the whole context of scripture, um, that there are promises involved in that command. And I I wonder just on a practical level, if you could speak to that, uh,
0: just like to the promises of God and, um,
1: how we, as it relates to people's anxieties and dealing with stress and God's telling me not to be anxious, but here I am feeling anxious. Yes.
0: Um, well, one of the things I would say is, so, you know, modern Western people are kind of hyper feeling um, obsessed, like our emotions drive us in ways that it's not that emotions are bad things, but they're, they should be the product of truth, not the things that dictate truth. So one of the things that I'll try to counsel people into too, and, and David does a phenomenal job of this in the Psalms, I've gotten into the understanding the like psychological significance of the Psalms much more in my, my older life uh, and reading through the Psalms more in detail. But one of the things he does, for instance, is in Psalm 42, is he says, um, why are you so downcast, my soul? Why are you falling in despair? Um, and basically what he's doing is he's rebuking his soul. And it's interesting that in a Psalm that is a song of praise to God, you know, essentially what he's doing is he's not allowing his feelings – to tell his brain what to think he's telling his brain filled with god's promises to tell his heart what to feel in other words the shift is from when you're anxious i think to some extent you're letting the circumstances and the feelings surrounding those circumstances tell you what to think and dictate what you think but instead if you can fill your mind with god's promises and your mind can tell your heart what to feel like that actually puts you in control and um, just leveraging God's promises that way uh, is such a calming uh, type thing. Now that's a technique and you don't learn techniques like that. Like you can, you can learn the nuts and bolts of it, but you don't learn it. It doesn't change overnight. And I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus gives us so many organic illustrations. So he's constantly talking about, you know, vines and branches and seeds and stuff like that. And I think because spiritual growth is organic. And so it doesn't happen overnight. And so regardless of what somebody feels coming out of a worship service or after a Bible study, uh, that might not dictate, that might not be a reality. That might just be the feeling of the moment. But if you trust the process and you stick to the process and you submit to the spiritual disciplines and you do them again and again and again and again, what it is, one of the analogies I'll sometimes give is it's like, uh, okay, so you got this great patio furniture outside And every time you hear one of God's promises that God loves me, uh, not because of who I am, but because of his goodness. So he loves me undeservedly. He's promised me a future in heaven with him. He will not leave me or forsake me. He commands his angels to watch over me. He works all things out for my good. Take all those promises. And essentially what it is, is every time you hear it, it's like turning a screw down on a bolt in your patio furniture and like each time you hear it again and again, it's just twisting it a little bit further. And then when the storms come, the storms of life come, all your patio furniture doesn't fly away, you know, because it's like, um, if you're not bolted down, if you're not screwed down by that stuff, uh, it like you're just completely a victim of the winds of life. But if you can have something that anchors you and cements you in what God's promises do again, organically day after day, you drill those things down. Is it's like, you know, calm in the storm. It doesn't matter what comes, but you're going to be, you're going to stay fine, you know, and not like fine relatively. It doesn't mean you like the circumstances, but it's an internal calm that fights off the external chaos. And, and I mean, for a lot of us who deal with anxiety, depression, it's an inability to manage uh, stressors of life. You know, like a lot of us, it's not just like mental health issues or anything like that. It's like life complexity issues that we don't know how to manage that you know and so i think taking god's promises drilling them down that's what like the spiritual disciplines as much as anything is they're like they're like exercises you know it's like getting your body the same way you get your body in shape you get your spiritual welfare in shape and then you're you have the resources and the muscles to deal with the the inevitable things of a fallen world
1: yeah yeah so so i mean what you're talking about is uh is a practice Right, Uh, like, like if, if, or, you know, some people might defer to like having it in their routine or something like that. But um, really, being intentional with it and saying this is a uh, an action that I'm going to take to expose myself in some way to God's promises because that's right. That doesn't just happen in a vacuum. Correct. Um, We have to. We have to invite that in some way. Uh, by either stepping into god 's word or showing up to church or engaging in some sort of devotional life or bible study small group right i mean yep
0: so that's and, and in fact i 'd even take it a step further the like so not only do we need to invite those uh those messages and those disciplines into our life, but the the rest of the world isn 't neutral mm. like so everybody is constantly preaching to you a vision of the good life and i mean if you're not aware of it it means you're probably buying it already and uh like so like every commercial every song every movie everything is essentially saying you know there's an emptiness in your life and it needs to get filled and whatever we're offering whatever vision we're presenting um you know, like maybe that'll make you happy and maybe that'll make you whole. And so it's like, I, I often tell people like, yeah, I preach one pretty long sermon every week, but there are other things that are preaching you constant sermons every day. And so you need to balance out false messaging with true messaging in order to, again, kind of anchor yourself.
1: hmm hmm wow. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then, um, you know, as, as you're kind of describing these different, practices and then now saying well and you also have to set boundaries with the other messages that you're exposed to yeah um, i mean how do you how do you coach or counsel people to discern some of those messages because some of them can sound really good and, and really appealing and um but maybe they're but maybe they're not the truth um, yeah yeah how does one discern that
0: Yeah, it's, again, I don't think you can navigate what is false without regularly having um, reminded it like daily reminded in your brain what's true. Like, so if you're not hearing God's word on a regular basis, I just assume, like, because there is the devil, the world and the sinful flesh, right? Like there is demonic forces trying to pull you away from Christ. There is a fallen world that is conducive to pulling you away from Christ. And you have this internal enemy, like your own flesh, that wants to run away from Christ, too. So you have to be in those, um, you, you have to force yourself to be in those true messages on a regular basis. Now, as far as, like, discerning, I think, again, I think spiritual disciplines, what I usually tell people is, like, so even... Uh, You know, maybe 90% of life involves making decisions that are not God said, do this or don't do that. So like gray area kind of this is like, so who should I marry and what should I do for a living and like major life decisions, where should we live and um, like, how do I figure that stuff out? Well, it's a combination. I think the discernment comes with, um, okay, what biblical principles pertain to this particular area? And there's usually, you know, several. Uh, Am I regularly seeking, like praying to God and seeking his, uh, you know, seeking his um, blessing, his hand, his his input on any of this? Uh, In other words, am I talking to him about it? Where where is my conscience at on this? Like there is such a thing as a gut and there is such a thing as a mind that God does give us to help navigate life. Like those are really helpful tools. They're, They're not the tools in and of themselves, like the be all end all, but they're tempered by the other tools. And then the third thing is Christian community, like the idea that every one of us would have somebody in our life that can speak, you know, not a friend that just always agrees with us, but a friend that speaks hard, necessary truth. You know, the iron sharpens iron. We're encouraging one another, but we also hold one another accountable. You know, I think the modern Western belief that um, I can, I should be able to do everything by myself is not true. And for that matter, the idea that, you know, I can't tell you how many young adults I've worked with that essentially talk about uh, my relationship with God being, or my, my spiritual life being me and God. Like, well, that, that, that's not at all what the Bible teaches. Like, you need to be, you're, you're a member of the body. And there's a hundred statements in the New Testament that say, like, do this to one another, love one another, serve one another pray for one another. It's impossible to submit to any of that. It's, it's impossible to one another unless you're deeply immersed in Christian community. And so like discernment, like the idea of asking other people, okay, I'm dating this person. What do you think? You know, I trust you. I'm opening myself up to you. Or I struggle with this. What do you think? Yeah, or I can, a of vulnerability. it is totally, a totally vulnerability. Um, But, like, theoretically, if we all confess that we're sinners saved by grace, like, I've said for a long time that I'm convinced that um, AA and Weight Watchers figured out something that unfortunately the modern Christian church does not do very well. And that is the necessity of vulnerability with other human beings. And it's the ability to put your narrative into words in a way that heals us. Because, like, So the the creation account is God creates this like watery chaos on day one. And then he uses his word to organize everything. And so he orders like so on day two, he he creates this expanse that separates the waters. And um, so basically there's this chaos that he brings to order through words now, ultimately, we understand in the biblical framework of thinking that that word becomes flesh and, and that meaning of life in Jesus Christ, the logo, saves us. There's also like a theology of words. That means words, what they do is they add order to chaos. So when I'm feeling internally chaotic, if I can just speak that to somebody, if I can just like flesh it out in narrative form, it helps me make sense of it and gain control of it. And, um, so this idea of like confessing to one another and sharing with one another. Now, obviously a percentage of the problems that people face out there that are legitimate, like mental health issues, they need to go to a professional therapist like yourself to work through, but a lot of people aren't very well simply in part because they don't know how to construct their negative internal emotions in the, like they're not sharing it with anybody and it just festers inside. And so the importance of, uh, humans in general, but like Christians should be leading the way on transparently sharing struggles because I'm not saved because I'm proportionately better than anybody. I'm saved simply by God's grace. And I'm not afraid to admit I'm a sinner. I struggle with stuff. I need your help. I need you. And, uh, if everybody does that, like it creates such a humble, safe environment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, we, we've been, uh, dealing with social media in our lives for a long time now um there's plenty of uh young adults uh young people at this point that don't know a time without social media um and now during um covid when there have been a lot of restrictions in terms of connecting with others um mobility uh it's been very isolating experience for a lot of people um i've certainly read a number of Uh, important articles about that topic and and how to how important social connectedness is Mm -hmm. Um, but what you're talking about you know social media is cannot be a substitute correct for what you're what you're discussing so how have you you know tried to keep people in in god's word how have you personally tried to maintain your connections that help you be accountable um Amidst the, the circumstances that we're in present day,
0: yeah. The um, so the COVID stuff, uh, so far as I can tell, is just I know this from a church standpoint, I haven't thought it through very clearly from just a societal standpoint, but I know on a church standpoint, it's, it's accelerating trends that already existed, and so, um, the the necessity of, of living certain things. So like human beings were already shifting things online. Okay. Well now we have to do most things online at this point, kind of like it or not, but we're also learning what you can't do online and what, when I try to do everything online and I feel some, something's missing, what is it exactly that's missing? And uh, that human connectivity, like I've seen nothing out there that suggests anything indicating that social media um, can replace social life. You know, um, in fact, if anything, it kind of seems to exacerbate the communication process, uh, amongst human beings. So like it, it doesn't serve a purpose and can you like stay connected? Like, so obviously, you know, years ago, we wouldn't have been able to have this conversation, at least not like this. And so there's all sorts of blessing attached to it. But how do you, you know, this is part of Christian discernment. How do you discern what is redeemable about this versus what is not, you know, not the same thing? And, you know, I think there is, there is such a thing as like incarnational presence and, you know, God becoming man and living and walking and holding us, like a, living amongst us. And uh, I think the willingness to enter into other people's life and the willingness, the necessity of being with other people, whether you like it or not, whether you're an introvert or not, whether you're, um, again, I, by nature, I'm just, I am an introvert. I will, I will record nine times out of 10, given the option of being in a large group, which I find draining or being in a small group or, or just at home, I'll, I'll choose the small, whatever. But I've definitely learned about myself during the past eight months. I'm not nearly as well when I'm not essentially like forced to be around other people. Um, and that that just does nothing for my overall wellness and health and, and that sort of thing. So um, I hope what we learn as a society coming out of this is the – I hope we learn a new gratitude for – other human beings and being around other beings beings as opposed to just constantly being irritated by other human beings. Because humans are like they're the worst and the best at the same time, you know? Um, but framing it to always see, you know, the the best possible things, the the great seeing in people what God sees in people, as opposed to hating people for the ways they're not perfect, you know. Is something I'm personally trying to learn from this, but I'm also just recognizing and craving humanity, which is something I never thought I would. I mean, I, I even looked at that as a weakness, I think. Like the idea that I need to be around other human beings. Like, no, I can do it on my own and I want to do it on my own and I'll be better on my own. And that's just not true.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it goes back to that, that um, strong tendency towards individualism. Mm-hmm. Um, this I should be able to do it on my own mentality. Um, yeah. And even, even though we can name that and label it, it still finds a way of creeping into our day-to-day life and our, yeah. and our, our perspective on challenges, that this is something that, you know, in, from a personal and a professional standpoint, I am uh, opposed to the word should. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. It's, it's, um, it's a bad word. Especially- it's a moralizing word for sure. Yeah. Um, and so better to talk in, in terms of things that are needful um, and then choices that I can make, um, saying, well, I can do this or, or I, I could make this choice or I could not make that choice or I could make an alternative choice. So, yeah.
0: I uh, was recently just as far as human connectivity is concerned, I was recently reading a study about a, uh, sociologist in Berkeley, California who did a study of several thousand participants asking basically what she was doing. Her team was trying to figure out if you concentrated on trying to make yourself happier, can you make yourself happier? And what she found, several thousand participants in the study was that, uh, when people in the United States, they 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 did the study over, it was in US, in Russia, in Japan and in China. And what they found is when people consciously, deliberately tried to make themselves happier, they would not become happier at all if they lived in the United States. But if they lived in Russia, Japan or China and they deliberately tried to make themselves happier, they would become happier. And so then they were like, okay, what's the difference? And what they figured out was, so um, like we've known for years that Western people, so British people, Americans have a hyper individualism sense to them, whereas Eastern peoples generally are more collectivistic in their thinking. And so a modern Western person, when they say, I'm going to work on myself and work to become more happy, what they do is they try to accumulate stuff and they try to um, gain you know, a promotion or achieve a status or something like that for themselves. The Eastern person, when they deliberately worked on, uh, tried to work on their happiness. What they would do is they'd think about it in a group, and they would say, "I'm going to try to make the people around me happier," and that it did, in fact, make them happier overall. And I think it's just this interesting, um, like I, biblically speaking, I always thought it was fascinating that there were regional deities, that there were regional gods, and there was regional, you know, like every different people group had their own. Sure. You know gods and goddesses, mm-hmm. and the older I get i 'm convinced there is a western false God, a Western demon of individualism that makes us miserable by thinking the, the lie is we think we 're liberating ourselves by detaching and decommitting from other human beings when in reality uh, we were wired by a relational triune God to exist in relationship with other human beings with other beings and and our lives are supposed to be more about them than about us. And I think the isolation and, I mean, everything that I've seen so far right now on pandemic rates of mental health, like you so your business is booming right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the things like suicide rates and depression rates for specifically for young generations, Gen Z and millennials, who are already disconnecting from humanity because of technology to some extent. And they're just doing terrible, um, in part because of this lack of human connectivity. And I think again, COVID has exacerbated that. And my hope is that where we repent and are kind of redeemed from that is that we come out on the other side and we're just so much more into quality human relationships.
1: Yeah. I, I, I did a presentation last fall. So fall, fall of 2019 on mental health to a, a pretty large group of educators. And, um, you know, one of the things that I was talking about related to Gen Z and millennial generations is that their source of significant stressors is very different than Gen X and, and further back. Um, mm-hmm. They're much more focused on um, social issues. Right, things happening in the world, right. uh, issues on a national or international level, are are much more in their frame of focus in terms of things that they worry about or are stressed about. Um, yep. And economics, um, there's still a, a, a you know a large percentage of people, even in the U.S., that struggle with hunger and mm-hmm. getting enough food. Um, and this isn't um, so. This isn't something new, but now, like you said, we kind of overlay the landscape of 2020, not just with COVID, but also with a, a lot of social justice issues happening, oh, yeah. yep. and that further heightens all of those um, sources of stress and anxiety. We're yep. are isolated than ever, so we're trying to connect virtually, <clears throat> which then exposes us, I th- and you kind of referenced this before, like social media isn't just like subpar in terms of connecting, but we're also exposed to so many more things that can make us feel bad. Yes, yep. Um, so I, I think, um, you know, in terms of what you're talking about, are, are there some actionable things um, that, that people can do to try and, and move out of that mindset, you know, mm-hmm. hyper-focus on that and, yeah. and pivot toward a different mindset?
0: The, one of the amazing things, so in the 20th century in the age of technology and information, was that we give everybody access to everything. And so you, know, you can have conversations around the world, um, you can connect with music and writing and, you know, books and, and videos from around the world, any, and then it became like this asynchronous, anytime you want, anytime you, and so it's access, access, access. And so there's nothing in the world that has to be hidden to me, except for the fact that maybe as one finite human being, I shouldn't have access to everything. And the idea that, okay, I can get a 24-hour news cycle with my personal preferences and biases attached to it, and I can just sit there and watch it nonstop, is not healthy. Like, I, I'm, not, I'm convinced that like we've so tailor-made uh, the world to our own personal biases that we in, we're inundated with it, and then we can't even interact with another human being that has different takes on things. And so I think the the idea of turning off um, and tuning out and like the discipline now is, um, can I say no to the things that I might be free? Nobody's going to throw me in jail if I watch this. Nobody's going to, you know, yell at me if I watch this. I have the freedom, you know, to do it. But am I able to self, you know, like self uh, discern and self discipline to be able to tune stuff out? Um, so, for instance, something like politics is is one of those things that I just think I don't think every Christian is. I mean, I think I grew up hearing that every Christian should do their duty and play their part and be there, uh, like take their citizens citizenship seriously. Yeah, you know, whatever. Yeah, I get that. Except unless it's more freedom than you can handle, in which case you need to turn it off and tune it out. And I think probably a lot of Christians are at that point right now where they just need to start tuning some stuff off and turning like self-policing that way. And like, yeah, I'm not free to watch that movie and I'm not free to watch that news program and I'm not free to read this or listen to this or whatever. And I'm starting to sacrifice things uh, at the altar of the true God instead of sacrificing to all of my own personal preferences and and false gods. Mm -hmm you know what I mean like I think there's a um, you know what can we do I because th- I think it's making us all worse like I think <laughs> for me personally because so my wife's in a, um, a program right now where she's got to be up pretty much every day at 4 a.m. and I'm not ready to go to bed at eight thirty every night so um, I'm uh, staying up and for the first time in my life as an adult I'm, I'm just like watching the news And, uh, we have a news thing that comes on at like nine here and every day I'm getting the coronavirus numbers and every day I'm hearing what's not working in the school system and every day, and I'm like, this is not making me better at all as a person. You know, I'm fixating on, on the things of this world, as opposed to fixating on the God who rules over this world. And so I don't know that I'm free to partake of that now you know? And I think I'm a lot healthier when I'm able to say no to that stuff. Yeah. And that's just one example, but you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, no, I, I get that. I get that. Um, and I, I wonder a little bit um, as you're talking about that, like, you know, mental, like you said, mental health, um, like people aren't necessarily unwell strictly because of some sort of mental health issue. Um, but there are, you know, kind of mismanaging some of the ways in which they're spending their time or the things that they're spending their time with. Um, but when there is a mental health issue there, something like depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, that does, I, th- I, I think, create some additional vulnerabilities there mm-hmm. for yep. um, dwelling on something. E- you know, even if I'm not necessarily... Exposing myself to it, I've kind of turned off the news, yeah, but my brain isn't turned off yet okay. right um, or or i'm and so then i'm I'm just feeling worse and worse and worse, or I'm getting more kind of ramped up, you know my thoughts are going faster um, you know i these are these are real things that are happening for that person at that time, even if even if nothing bad is going on in that moment, it certainly sure. feels like something bad is going on in that moment. And I wonder if there's a scriptural perspective on that. Like when we're in that bad place, kind of in our own head, on our own with it, you know, w- what does God's word say about those moments?
0: Yeah. You know, there is one of my favorites. I mentioned Philippians 4 a while ago, which is the, the Apostle Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, pray to God. Now, that's an interesting statement. Um, some Christians, I think, can give me the, yeah, I shouldn't be anxious, I should pray. Not many remember the, the whole, that little phrase thrown in there, with thanksgiving. And it seems peculiar and counterintuitive because it seems like, okay, if I'm asking God for something, why would I thank him before he gives it to me? But you're not really thanking him for what he's going to potentially give to you. What you're thanking him for is, number one, his track record of grace. So a cross proves that he loves me. An empty tomb proves that he's powerful enough to help me. Those two things uh, are really powerful to focus on. Um, But his track record, I thank him for all that he's already done for me. I thank him for everything that he's promised to me. And then there's the third thing that I thank him for is I thank him that he knows me better than myself. He loves me better than I love myself. And he actually knows the future. Like, so if there's something that I really need, he won't deny it. And if there's something that's not good for me, he won't supply it. And my favorite example of somebody praying this way is you look at Daniel in uh, Daniel chapter six. And the king at the time, Darius, issues a decree that anybody in Babylon who prays to anybody but the king in the next 30 days is going to get executed. And so Daniel, who is this high-ranking official that King Darius actually likes, the first thing that we're told he does, he hears this decree and he goes home, he opens his windows, he faces Jerusalem, he gets down on his knees, and we're told he prays and gives thanks to God. Uh, Like he gives thanks. That's the first thing he thinks to do. And uh, that's Daniel 6.10, and it isn't until the next verse that he starts asking God for any relief. Now, what, interestingly also, God doesn't take it away. Like, God doesn't just take King Darius away. God doesn't take the decree away, and he doesn't take the lions away. Like, he's going to get thrown to the lions. What he does is he gives Daniel a supernatural peace, despite the fact that he's surrounded by lions. And you contrast that with King Darius, who we're also told that night, so he's like the wealthiest guy on the planet. He's in the best palace in the world. He's sleeping in the comfiest bed in the world, but he's not sleeping. He's awake. He doesn't get one wink of sleep. And what that tells us is if you have the peace of God, which Daniel had, you know, like I'm thankful for what God has done, what he's promised and uh, who he is, like his character. I can sleep perfectly, even though I'm surrounded by hungry lions. But if I only have good circumstances, like King Darius had, that's never gonna be enough. I'm never gonna be happy, I'm never gonna find peace. So, I mean, like 99% of the time, what Christians are doing and, and the world is doing is trying to change the circumstances so that I can find peace. And it just it doesn't work like that. Change what's going on on the inside and be, given, you know, be infused with the peace of God and then you become so strong that it's like, it, well, it doesn't matter what the world's circumstances are. I have peace, like taking away all the lions of life is like, you can't control that. And actually, the more you try to control the things that you can't control, it's just going to make you more, more anxious. Right. But what,
1: what, can, what would have happened if da- Daniel went over and just tried to physically close the lion's mouths? You know, say, yes. keep them closed and, uh, and you won't bite me, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's not right. He's not, he's not trying to force the situation on that circumstance. Um, He's understanding who God is in the midst of horrible circumstances. And like, that's the only way you find peace. And furthermore, like this is kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. If Christians are just constantly fleeing from bad circumstances, it's hard to actually do any kind of, I'm not talking about just like public ministry. I'm talking about like impacting people with grace like if you're constantly running away from brokenness, how are you going to be God's instrument to move into bringing healing into anybody's life? And if you're not bringing any healing into anybody's life, how is your life like meaningful in any way? Like if we're created for one another and and to serve and love one another. So like it's the, I don't need my circumstances to be better. I need to, I need God to make me so strong to handle my current circumstances and that is a, like, it's a mental shift, but it's such a better, it's, it, it cures so much anxiety because I stop trying to pull the levers to make my life exactly the way I want it to be. And I just say, God, fill me with your spirit and help me be what you need me to be in these circumstances.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, th- yeah, that, that gets into this, um, practice of serving others and 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 being of service uh, making yourself available putting yourself in positions uh, to be a helper to others and and yeah there's lots of people that have uh, chosen to do that in a professional sense Um, but I think there's an opportunity in everybody's life regardless of your profession regardless of your family or personal situation um to to do that to follow through i'm actually being of service to the people in your community in in, in your area um but it, it takes a a conscious decision to do that yeah. yep um, so so like from a motivation standpoint you know wh- where does that Where does that Christian motivation come from to to put yourself out there knowing, yeah, you're broken, I'm broken, and God can still use us? Yeah. I think the,
0: like, so for me, part of the motivation is the kind of like eternal perspective of, okay, I'm going to be here maybe 70 or 80 years, and I'm not even guaranteed that but maybe 70 or 80 years, but I'm an eternal being. Um, My spirit will exist forever. And, uh, you know, I'm going to be in, in heaven for a billion years. So like 70, 80 years in the grand scheme of a billion is like, you know, whatever. So what am I doing here with my time? Like the idea of trying to squeeze as much, pleasure and happiness and like in 70 or 80 years, just seems like that just seems kind of silly when I'm going to live in paradise for a billion years, you know? Um, so why not, you know, I think I'm here for 70 or 80 years, uh, for the purpose of impacting like building the kingdom in whatever way that means. And I think it means being the embodiment of Christ's grace to other people, which means loving people who don't deserve it and moving into that kind of brokenness and again um doing whatever you can to provide healing to that and like in our society today i mean we just talked about how lonely people are how isolated people are how particularly young adults like and one of the things that every human being can do is they can listen like just go in and ask somebody like just in interestedly actively listen to somebody you know and i think that's like you know and I mean, there are still hungry people today, but it's not the issue probably that it was at Jesus time. And so what Jesus did is he would give people bread and then he would teach them how he was the bread of life, you know, and both of those indicated his love for them. He provided for physical needs and he married that to spiritual need too. And if you can just like, if people are truly are, if one of the biggest human needs right now is interconnectivity. Like, I need another human being because the, the number one response to since 2004, I think it was the number one response to how many close personal friends and confidants do I have? You know, the number one response in America is zero. I don't have anybody. The number for years and years, I think the number, the answer used to be three. Like, I have three close personal friends, but the average person today, or the most common response given, anyways, is I don't have any. So, like, but you can be that to somebody. It now it takes a conscious decision. But you can say, yeah, that guy over there is really rough and uh, a lot of people don't have time for him. But if I just show up and I ask him how he's doing and I I ask him about his life and I ask him what he thinks about things and he will feel so much better about himself, about his life, about, and not only that, but I'll gain trust uh, to the point of building this bridge of, like, so I'm healing him in some way by letting him share his story. But if he ever asks, I'm more than happy to tell him about the savior that, you know, life that really is life that I'm looking forward to as somebody with a mental health issue myself. And so much of life, there's been so many times where I've just wanted nothing but to get out. You know, like that's all I want is an exit from the like internal pain and misery of life. Um, but I know that there is an exit and it's coming. I'm just, you know, not accelerating. And I know God is going to call me when, I'm, when he's ready. And so, but to be able to share that with somebody else too, like, yeah, man, life is rough. I'm so happy that this is just a temporal situation, and here's here's the savior who made that possible, you know. But I think that everybody can
1: everybody can do that.
0: Everybody can listen to somebody else. Everybody can be a friend to somebody else. Everybody can be non-judgmental, um, that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. It begins with relationship, and in uh, that relationship, then becomes the, the pathway to all these other things. What, what, yeah, whether it's happiness, uh, whether it's evangelism, uh, yeah. whether it's, yeah, just even physically giving somebody bread, you know, yeah. that, that there, there has to be some sort of a relationship there in order for that to be meaningful in any sense of the word.
0: A human cannot be well without connection to other humans without connection to like meaningful, like meaning and purpose. And for that matter, like meaningful values in their lives. And so the idea of loving and serving others ahead of yourself, like takes
1: care of so much of that,
0: you know? Mm -hmm.
1: So transitioning a little bit here, James, to, you know, I've heard this over the years, um, that when when there's a, a problem especially it seems especially like a mental health problem I think we're kind of past this for a lot of physical diseases you know mm-hmm. this to not having faith or not being strong enough in the faith like but but I think there's still a sense of that with mental health issues um, you know first of all did you ever have that experience like when you were going through some of your own mental health issues that you were attributing this to some sort of spiritual deficiency.
0: Yes. Yeah. That was definitely there. Um, And I wouldn't point to any one person. and, And honestly, my inability to navigate it for much of my life was the number one issue. I would say in many cases was like, it was my own. First of all, some of it was nobody's fault. Uh, and some of it was my own, whatever that I like. I have to own more of that than anybody else. But I would also say that I mean anybody who's born and raised in a like conservative religious upbringing, there is this temptation to like if if you only have a hammer in your toolbox, every problem is just a nail. And so, if you're in a religious setting, you assume, okay, well, if this person's suffering, that's because you don't have enough faith. And the interesting thing is, um, you know, if you're a sociologist, you also can't be this one tool, one trick, you know, whatever, too. And you can't just say, well, because you're, you're sad because society wasn't good to you. People weren't good to you. Or if you're, you know, a, a dietitian, well, you're, you're sad because your diet, your food isn't right. It's much more complex than that. And even though there are Christians and religious people who simplify it into merely a faith issue, the Bible doesn't do that. And I'll often share with people, one of my favorite examples is uh, the prophet Elijah in um, first Kings 19. He just, he defeats this. He has this big showdown with these prophets of Baal on uh, a mountain and he defeats them. And, um, So essentially, like, it's a positive experience, but it's such a draining experience. And there's such an emotional letdown after it that he goes and sits down and he basically talks to God and just says, I want to die. You know, like, very clearly, that's depression. And he's emotionally, like, he's been spinning and, and running for so long that he's just tapped out of energy, you know. And what God does is he doesn't just tell him to have more faith. Now, he does tell him that there are some things that Elijah doesn't trust enough. So it's not a non-faith issue. Like faith is a component of it, but it's not exclusively a faith issue. And what God does is he has him take a couple naps. So like he sleeps. God makes him a couple meals. So it is dietary. God has him get up and go on a journey. So there's a physiological component to it. And what God also tells him is that you're not alone. There's 7,000 other Israelites who have not bowed to Baal. So you're like, you have a community. So like right there in that, God says, yeah, Elijah, you should trust my promises more, but also here's some soup and get some rest and get some exercise and uh, live in believer community more. So it's like, like God is not simplistic in his response to depression. And therefore, I, I think sometimes God's people are sometimes simplistic in their responses to depression, but God himself is not. And all you have to do is look at the, you know, the case study of Elijah to see that.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. What a, I mean, what a beautiful example really of um, treating the whole person. Yeah. And how important that is. And so um, from a psychology only standpoint or, or a counseling standpoint only, you know, you're, you're going to say, yeah, of course, get better sleep. Make sure that you're eating and nourishing your body, yeah. have daily activity, whether that's exercise or some form of movement. But right. when you're up, be up, be active, do these things oh. and, then, and then connect with other people. But the part that gets lost is the attention to spiritual wellness, to be able yeah. to, to trust, that, to, to work at trust, to, to nourish faith um to exercise faith, right? Yeah. All of those same things parallel in with spiritual being. So so the this whole first portion of, of our conversation today, that's why that's so critically important. Um because the uh in many cases that, that just gets missed or yeah. or thought of as not important or only peripherally important.
0: Yeah. I it's a while back I had a college student female who um really she heard a sermon that I preached she was visiting that week heard a sermon that I preached and sent me an email really laid into me for from her perspective uh just turning anxiety depression into a faith issue and um because she, she said, okay, I've struggled with these things and I know it has to do with uh, chemical imbalance and it has to do with, you know, X, Y, and Z, which are other uh, things. And, and so I, you know, kind of calmly responded back and I said, okay, first of all, here's a link to, you know, uh, a dozen other things that I've either preached or written myself where I, I never would say like anxiety and depression is only exclusively a faith issue. But here's the problem if you buy a secular understanding of anxiety and depression that it would only potentially be like a physiological issue. And not everybody believes that certainly, but there are some who, again, even that issue of chemical imbalance, I've, I'm reading a book right now and actually uh, basing a worship series on a book called Lost Connections by uh, Johan Hari. Uh, but basically, he's, he's, uh, it's, it's called Why You're Depressed and How to Find Hope is the... Uh, the subtitle, but basically he attacks this uh, modern Western idea of all mental health issues being simply chemical imbalance. Um, and and talks about the pharmaceutical implications of that, and all that stuff. Anyways, this young woman had said, um, you know, it basically what she was saying is it's only a chemical imbalance. You should never talk about it as a spiritual deficiency or faith deficiency or whatever. And I said, You know, I I clarified and and shared with her part of my manuscript, and I said, I never said this was just a faith issue or anything like that. I said, you know, to the contrary. However, if you don't see these issues as spiritual at all, you miss out on a couple different things. Number one, it uh, robs you of your opportunity for spiritual growth. So when you face resistance and you face suffering, uh, if you don't think to pray to God, cling to God's promises, uh, you know, bolt yourself down in the middle of the storm, you're missing out on on this huge opportunity to be molded more into the image of Christ, which is part of the, you know, trajectory and goal of Christians. The second thing is you're robbing yourself of resources that God has, has brought into your life, uh, specifically to help give you some relief. So like, how often isn't prayer attached to the reduction of anxiety like how many times doesn't he say do this and so if you tell people yeah anxiety depression is not a spiritual thing at all you know they're never going to think to pray pray about it you know they're only going to think to you know whatever and so they're, they're missing out on divine supernatural resources to process some of this stuff and so again it's it's what I've been impressed by is even though human beings are sometimes simplistic, the Bible itself is so nuanced and sophisticated in ways that most of the religious and secular world don't even really appreciate or understand.
1: Yeah. Well, it takes a lot of time to yeah. uh, invest to gain that perspective, knowledge, understanding, and, and then application as well. Right. Um, you, know, you're, you're, you mentioned the pharmaceutical approach you know I've that's a topic that I want to cover in this uh, podcast certainly is um, addressing the that perspective on medication and treatment and how does that you know contribute to wellness and right at times does it inhibit wellness um, yep. but you know even even neuroscience um, would say That those um, you know our our methods for controlling our autonomic nervous system Uh um, are are pretty blunt. You know the use of stimulants and depressants. um, These are not you know scalpels that are that are precise. Um, And so while they are effective, um, they're probably not. Sufficient or or comprehensive in the way in which they help people, right yep uh, so I think we can kind of um, you know safely stand on that side of the issue even as a uh from a Christian perspective, saying, yeah, there's neuroscience that recognizes that as well, and those are the tools that we have, so we're going to continue to use them yep. um, but I yeah, we can't just stop there that that's not like. The answer.
0: I, as I get a lot of questions about uh, Christians and medication and
1: yeah, you know, I think
0: there's been a stigma attached to, you know, whatever for a long time. And I don't even th- think it exists nearly as much now as it did 20 years ago. Sure. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I'm very open with people about the fact that I've taken uh, a variety of uh, medications to help deal with uh, OCD. Uh, symptoms to various degrees of success. And one of the ways I heard it put in a a book once that I thought was just really helpful was they uh, described uh, those types of prescriptions as like water wings when you're learning to swim. And the idea is, yeah, you might not just throw a kid right into a pool, but, um, you know, if you can give them something that will make them more buoyant while while they're learning to swim, like, so the goal is not that you would be ideally, the goal is not that you would be, you know, 40 years old and still wearing water wings in the pool. But um, some of us do have to, you know, wear them for a long time. But if you have the ability to develop the muscles uh, to swim on your own, and you don't need them anymore, and some of the side effects that come along with them, um, like that would be a great place to be. So it's not either or. And so yes, I mean, I look at medications as one more way that God helps take care of us and bless us in the same way that, you know, if you have a, a cancer patient and there's some medication available to help with that, like, man, that is, thank God for that. Don't stigmatize that. Um, also use it, but don't look at it as the savior either. There's no, there's no pill that we can take that makes any, uh, actual unrest in the soul go away. It's going to require a bigger answer than that. So we thank God for it, but we don't rely solely or primarily on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's hilarious that you're using that water wing analogy yeah. with medication um, because I, I've, I've done something very similar as I've talked through medication um, with, with folks. So just about me, like there was a time when I really enjoyed doing triathlons Right. Mm. and this is, I lived in Florida. Um, the triathlete community is, very big down there you can train all season
0: right Um,
1: and the the like swimming in the gulf is uh, a fantastic experience because it's salt water um, it's relatively warm um, there's not really these strong strong currents in most of the areas where i was swimming and doing and doing racing and so like I didn't, I didn't need any help. Like I, I could just yeah. wear my triathlon suit and go yeah. out there, and my success or lack of success was 100% on me. Like it was just based on my training. Well, and I moved back to the Midwest, and I, I did some triathlons up near Duluth, <laughs> in a lake, um, not salt water, still, still no currents, but. If it's breezy, all of a sudden, you know, you've got this big chop, right? Yep. Um, and, and let me tell you, the water's not warm. Right. So I needed help. I, I, I needed, yep. uh, no matter how much I trained, I couldn't keep my body temperature up. So I needed a wetsuit, right? Yep. And I needed a f- like a full body wetsuit, but I didn't have one. I had one that didn't have sleeves but it had legs. So I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. So it wasn't great, but it still helped me. And I got through it. Um, and so that's kind of a little bit of a longer explanation why sometimes we can be doing really well and like the things that we're doing are sufficient. Um, what, you know, in terms of our self-care, uh, going to therapy or counseling meeting, you know, with my Bible study group, um, but then sometimes circumstances change. And if we just apply the same approach to it, we're not going to find as much success or, or we're not going to be successful at all. And so right. that's at times where medication comes in is that um, it's that wetsuit, right? It's that extra support that I can have when circumstances change and, and I'm, the normal stuff that I'm doing just isn't working.
0: Right. Yep. Totally. Totally agree.
1: Now, yeah. People that live up in Alaska and they're doing triathlons, they have to wear the wetsuit all the time. There's never a time when they don't. So there are folks that right have to have medication their whole life. And, and that's part of them taking care of themselves. And, yeah. and that's a real circumstance as well.
0: Totally. Yep. Um, I, the coming to acceptance on my obsessive compulsive disorder and realizing, so like I had heard that when I was younger too, like when we figured out that some of my behaviors were not, um, like, okay, this isn't normal. Like the word, maybe this is a phase, uh, was used. And I know that's sometimes used, uh, I know that there are true things about phases in childhood development and stuff like that, but there are also things that skew far outside the realm of typical pattern behavior. Yeah. And um, when I eventually got to the point where I realized I'm in it for the long haul on this thing, like till I die, I'm going to have some manifestations of OCD and this is going to be an every if and if I don't do my regular kind of behavioral therapy things for myself that I need in order to be well, it's going to go off the rails and, um, you know, whatever. And I, I resented that for so long. And at some point in time, you know, through the grief process, came to an acceptance of it and understood also that at various points, that's probably going to be uh, potentially some medication for me. And I am literally to the point where I will even get like some almost kind of nervous ticks um, if, I, if I don't and if I'm not on medication or if the situation becomes so stressful that, you know, whatever. And that just, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm studying right now and prepping to preach on the Apostle Paul's thorn in the flesh and uh, he asked God to take it away. And then he, God says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. And the reality that God allows me little thorns so that he can spare me from becoming proud, arrogant, and ultimately like the final, the potential thorn of, of like hell. He gives me a little slice of hell sometimes here on earth and he allows it. But that actually makes me so much spiritually healthier when I realize I'm dependent on him. I'm dependent on the blessings that He's brought into my life and the people that He's brought into my life, and uh, some for some of us, we're going to be dependent on medication from a in a healthy way, like a prescribed way, and um, that's okay. It makes me humble, but humbles a good place to be. It's fertile grounds for like spiritual development.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When in in our weakness, we see His strength, and yeah. uh, so. All right, so let's let's bring this home uh, today. Uh, I've certainly appreciated um, our conversation, our discussion. Talked about some things that I figured we would, and then talked about some things that I had no idea that we were going to. So that's um, that's fantastic. I, I appreciate that. So uh, one of one of my questions um, that I like to ask uh, at the end is. Um, what kind of, what, what's next for you? What, what kind of projects are you working on currently? What uh, goals have you set for yourself? Yeah. What, what's down the road that you're working toward? Um,
0: I am. So I know I resisted for a long time moving anything from a church community standpoint online. Um, so like we had a website and stuff like that, but I, I, didn't move beyond that because I I was so concerned about, I I knew the impact of social media. I knew the impact of how, uh, you know, digital connection doesn't substitute for like incarnational connection. And so I was resistant of that. Uh, Then we, you know, hit the pandemic point and it was like no gatherings of more than 10. And it's like, okay, we have to use this connection some, we have to use these gifts somehow. And for that matter, you know, I think, I forget exactly what the distance was. I think it was about 80 years between the invention of the printing press and the the Protestant Reformation. And the single biggest communication shift in the last 500 years has been the dawn of the internet. And so I think we've, we've had that for like 30 years now. I don't think the church has figured out, like God's people have figured out how to leverage that for gospel proclamation and kingdom building in the long run. And so like that probably is the thing like macro that I'm thinking of on a regular basis Uh, from a church standpoint, it's like, what can we shift online and what can't we? And so you can't substitute human relationships with digital relationships completely. Um, So like social media is not going to do it and whatever, but things like zoom Bible studies and stuff, we have all these different groups that are meeting now via zoom. That are, for instance, they're like young families and parents all put their kids to bed and now they're meeting at eight o'clock, you know, once the little ones are down and they're meeting for an hour, hour and a half. And they were never involved in any kind of Bible study or community like that, you know, prayer group or anything. They weren't doing that before, but they're craving interconnectivity right now. And they're actually finding that like the excuse of, well, but we have kids and we got to get them down for bed. Like it's not working in a Zoom world, you know? And it's actually, but it's so healthy for them. It's so good for them that even after coronavirus, we're going to like stuff like that will continue to go on. So that's just an illustration, but there's a lot of things like what can transfer online, what can't, and the things that can, I think in the Christian church, we have to figure out how to do that more. And so we are in the process of putting, so podcast stuff, you know, as you're doing, uh, sermons, uh, YouTube channel. Um all that stuff, daily devotional stuff. Uh, basically I, I'm well aware that these stores, the commodity producers like Blockbuster and Sears and you know, Virgin Records and all that stuff went away because they couldn't figure out what Amazon figured out. And the Christian church as a whole is going to have to become a little more Amazon and a little less Sears. And I don't mean that just from a Business standpoint, but um, the way humans are functioning, we need the church. We are the church, and it has to be a twenty-four-seven thing, not a an hour on a weekend kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of a philosophical thing. But we're shifting some stuff online, and then in other ways, we're absolutely trying to just foster more in-person relationships at the same time. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. Very cool. Um, so then. Uh, you, you did reference this a little bit um, during our conversation about uh, things that you're reading, uh, things that you're uh, consuming or watching right now. Because um, I know what you just talked about, that's right, the creative process, yeah. you know, like in, in terms of putting stuff out there. But what are you taking in right now? What are some of the things that you're really interested in that, that you could recommend to listeners? <laughs> Um, The single most important voice in my
0: life, in my spiritual development, has been a guy that I never actually met. I was at his church once, uh, but uh, Dr. Timothy Keller uh, at um, Redeemer out in New York City has explained the gospel and kind of brought it to bear for me in ways that nobody else ever had. And so Anything by Tim Keller... I'm constantly reading, I'm constantly doing studies on and sharing with people and um, whether it's the reason for God or the prodigal God or the meaning of marriage or walking walking uh, with God through pain and suffering is a fantastic book. Um, but other than that, um, other stuff that I'm reading right now, I just mentioned I'm doing a series, I put together kind of a study series on Johan Hari's Lost Connections. It's not a Christian book, but some of the stuff is so rooted in, I'm like, This is, it's rooted in, he's just saying what God has been telling us for 2,000 years in the Bible. Like, that's the power of it. It's God's design for human flourishing. And so, kind of cementing it in its biblical context and then sharing some of the research then with people and saying, look, this is what God has been telling us, you know, too. And we now know from a behavioral and a research-based standpoint, it works, you know. So, uh, I'm kind of big on that. Um, Yeah, I, I read a lot of, um, it, I mean, in recent years, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Jordan Peterson. Um,
1: a bit, yeah, I'm acquainted.
0: I, you know, it's, it's one of those like, okay, 20% of stuff I kind of let go out the other side, but 80% of stuff he's saying in a provocative and, and forceful but helpful way that runs completely counterintuitive to what the general societal voice is. Um, that's good. I read uh, a decent amount of like the, I don't know if you ever heard of the journal for biblical counseling, um, and the CCEF group, but, um, it's uh, some helpful stuff, uh, there too. But I, I mean, obviously, um, counseling stuff for me has been a, uh, kind of fascination and a research study because, um, the intersection of how humans behave and then being able to ask why. And I think actually good Christian teaching is not just a, like an exegesis of a text, of a biblical text. It is that. It's certainly not less than that. But uh, it's, it's also an exegesis of society and an exegesis of the human heart, like why we do what we do. And um, it shouldn't surprise us that when we take the God who designed us and gave us the manual, his, his word and how we best operate and how much he cares about us and why we should listen to that, and then we apply it to human behavioral patterns um, like it just, it, it, there's so much sensibility to it. So I don't know. I, I tend to read my, my favorite Christian authors, CS Lewis and Tim Keller and uh, Luther, of course. And, um, and then I have a lot of other like psych guys that I love to read too, men and women.
1: Brilliant. I love it. Yeah. Well, James, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. Um, sharing your experience, um, sharing uh, biblical grounded wisdom. I I just have thoroughly enjoyed our time together. So thank you.
0: Yeah, totally. My pleasure, Ben. Uh, Keep up the great work. This is fantastic. I love what you're doing.
1: All right. Well, we'll have to have you back on at some point down the road and uh, continue this conversation. Okay.
0: Fantastic. Hey, God bless, man. We'll talk to you soon.
1: Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe through your podcast app so that you automatically get the latest episode. I plan to publish one episode a week every Monday. Also, consider taking a moment to review the show if you found our discussion meaningful to you. Good old word of mouth is great too. Let people know about the WellMind podcast and spread the word. During today's show, James and I made reference to a few different publications, resources, podcasts. You can find all of that information in the show notes page. Many thanks to the staff here in the Bethany Lutheran College podcast studio. Greg, Seth, and Caleb have been tremendous in providing technical support for the podcast. Special thanks to Lauren McMacken for designing the logo and cover art for The Well Mind. Now, next week, I welcome speaker and advocate Michelle Margraff to the podcast. Michelle was the executive director of the Compass Center, an agency committed to serving those impacted by domestic violence and sexual assault. Now, she serves as the director of family support for kingdom workers. She frequently provides something called bystander trainings. These are trainings that prepare people to intervene in safe and effective ways when they see someone being harassed. She also facilitates educational and experiential trainings that go in depth on how to support people in domestic violence situations. Honestly, we take on some pretty heavy topics next week, but I I can't stress enough how important it is to equip yourself with the tools and the know-how on responding when someone breaks their silence and speaks about their experience with abuse, assault, or domestic violence. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, be well.